0: in boxes? Have you ever put anybody in a box? I have. Uh, We make boxes all the time, right? There's the athletic people, the non-athletic people. There's the smart people, the people that aren't so smart. There's the good-looking people and those who aren't quite as good-looking. There's the people that have done really good things in the world and people that have done worse things in the world. Whenever we put people in boxes, we're actually creating categories that separate us, and limit us, right? We're keeping our people separate from each other. We're keeping ourselves separate from other people. And then there's those boxes that we put up when people have done something that we aren't so proud of. You know, like we call them alcoholics, or that guy committed adultery, or that guy's divorced, or that lady's done this, and we put all these boxes up around people kind of labeling them with their sin, with the way they've really messed up. And those people were really afraid to get in their box, because if we get in their box, they might touch us, we might get contaminated, we might get polluted, you know what I'm saying? I mean, their sin might rub off on us, and it's not going to go so well for us. Now, churches have a way of becoming places where there's people on the inside and people on the outside, Church buildings are awesome, but sometimes they keep some people on the inside who feel comfortable coming in here, and other people on the outside who don't ever really want to come in here because they're not really sure if they're going to really be welcomed in this place. Most of us come to church dressed to the nines, right? Are you impressed this morning? Huh? Yeah. A lot more, a lot more impressed up because I'm trying to cover up my weaknesses, my limitations, my failures, my difficulties. If I put on the right clothes and come and stand in front of you, you all think I have it all together, right? We all play this game, don't we? And if we can make sure everyone thinks we have it all together, then no one really knows what's going on deep inside. But if you could get a real look at my heart, at my mind, at the things I'm struggling with, you might put me in a different box, You might not even even be sure that you wanted me to preach to you this morning. Right? What we do. Now, this morning's art, lost art, is the art of welcoming. And we're going to join Jesus. He's just finished healing the guy who was lowered through the roof, right, at his feet. And he says, take up your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And then he heads out into the streets of Capernaum, and we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Tax collectors were recruited by the Roman Empire to collect the money they needed to keep everything running, right? Tax collectors were usually local citizens who knew the customs and the people of the town, okay? And and they were required to collect a certain amount of money for the Roman Empire every year and turn that in. Now, you might wonder, how did they make their money? Well, they collected extra, So they come to you, they collect a tax that's rightfully the Roman Empire's tax, and then in order to get paid, they collected some extra. If they liked you, they might collect a little less extra. If they didn't like you, they might collect a lot more extra. Okay? How is this going to make you feel about these guys? Really warm toward them? No. No. These people were hated by the locals. These people were despised. They were people that were considered to be people that had sort of sold themselves out to the pagan Romans and we were kind of in partnership with them to enslave the Jews, right? Most people thought of tax collectors as people you didn't want to be kind of in relationship with, you didn't want to be around. Spiritually speaking, these people were considered to be people whose faith had really fallen off, you know? They didn't really follow the ways of the Jewish faith. They were were touching pagans. They were involved with pagan money and pagan interests. It just wasn't good. I, I was trying to figure out how you would compare these people. Like, what would be a comparison? I thought maybe used car salesmen. (laughs) I don't know, that's that's not really that fair. Um, But like, maybe like people that are like the mafia guys who are out for their bosses getting the money from the people and twisting people's arms and taking their money, right? These people would not be considered to be the spiritual giants of their day. Now, I love this text because if you look at this text, it doesn't say, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a miserable, pagan, related tax collector. Look what it says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. I love that. I love that. He saw a man named Matthew. Jesus saw people as people made in the image of God. Jesus refused to put people in boxes Refused to label them by their failures, their shortcomings, their limitations, their weaknesses, their hardships, their you know really good qualities or really bad qualities. Jesus just saw people made in the image of God, and he valued all people. So when he sees Matthew, he gives Matthew great value because he sees a man named Matthew, not a miserable sinner, a man named Matthew. Now in the church, we employ something different. It's called shame. We love to know the dirt on people, don't we? So we can spread it around a little bit. If you figure that everyone here knows the dirt on you, it kind of makes you feel like, oh boy, I don't know if I want to see these people. I had a friend, uh, I played hockey with at Wheaton College. He walked in the church I planted in Wheaton one Sunday morning with his new wife. They sat in the back. He looked down at the floor most of the time. Afterwards, he said, we should go out to breakfast He told me about his leaving Wheaton College. He had married his his college sweetheart, who I knew. And basically about eight years after Wheaton, he started drinking, became an alcoholic, deceived a bunch of people at his church, divorced his college sweetheart, put his kids through a lot of pain, went through and did all kinds of crazy stuff I would never think he was capable of. And the whole time he talked to me, he sat there looking down at the table as if, Like, he just wasn't worthy to look up in my eyes. I said to him, I said, hey, you can look up. You're You're not identified in Jesus' world by your sin, by your failures, by your shortcomings. You're identified by how he sees you as one of his children, right, made in the image of God. How many people out there in the world live their lives looking down at the table or at the floor because they're too ashamed for people to know who they really are? What if we could be the ones who lift their eyes and say, hey, look up. God loves you. He really does. He sees you way differently than you see yourself. Wouldn't that be an amazing spiritual thing to do? So look at what Jesus does with Matthew. The story continues. He says to Matthew, follow me. I love this. Jesus wants in his band of merry men, his closest followers, the guy he's building this kingdom, this church with, he wants Matthew he calls Matthew, this pagan, sinful tax collector guy who's compromised himself. And Matthew says, okay, I'll follow. I'll go. I'm in. Count me in, Jesus. I love that. So, um, so then, look at this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew's so excited about his newfound relationship with Jesus, his newfound kind of identity, he invites his friends over for dinner. And he asked Jesus to come join them. Now, think about it. Who would your friends be if you're a miserable, sinful tax collector? They'd be other miserable, sinful tax collectors, right? So here at Matthew's table, Matthew's house, Jesus is surrounded by these people that everyone has kind of put in a box of not being really worthy to be valued or loved or included. Sinners was a label used by the Pharisees to describe people that weren't living out the law as they had interpreted it. So Pharisees were dressed like me, looking down their noses at everybody around them, considering themselves to be more righteous than the rest, and pointing out everyone else's faults, and labeling people sinners. Pharisees thought of their holiness as higher, purer, and it was a mechanism for social exclusion. That, that crazy, that's crazy to me. Jesus is our Lord. He's the most loving guy to ever live on the planet Earth. And he surrounds himself with broken people, with sinners, right? He actually goes to the table and eats with them. Now, if you were a good Jew, you would never eat with these people. Because eating with them sort of says, I like them. I'm friends with them. I identify with them. They're my kind of people, right? When you eat at the table with somebody... It says something about who those people are. True? Eating with someone's a big deal. I mean, uh, think about your kids. When, you, when they sent them to school, you ask, do you have someone to eat lunch with? I remember when I would go travel to these places to consult with these churches, the worst time of the day was dinner. So I had to leave my hotel by myself and sit in a restaurant by myself, eating by myself. I was like the biggest loser on the planet, right? So when you eat with somebody, you're basically saying, I identify with you. I want to be in relationship with you. What if the most spiritual thing we could do on planet Earth, what if the most missional thing we could do was simply invite people over for dinner and eat with them? I mean, you already eat 21 meals a week. Why don't you give three of them to mission? Invite your neighbors over. Have a meal with them. Hang out with them. That's what Jesus did. Henry Nouwen says it this way. We all need to eat and drink to stay alive, but having a meal is more than eating and drinking. A meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table, we become vulnerable, filling one another's plates and cups and encouraging one another to eat and drink. Much more happens in a meal than satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Around a table, we become family, friends, community. The table is one of the most intimate places in our lives. It is there that we give ourselves to one another. We invite our friends to become part of our lives. But if you think about it, we're pretty choosy about who we'll eat with. Isn't that true? I mean, you don't want to really eat with some of those neighbors that live around you, do you? I mean, they might contaminate you. Jesus was not choosy. Jesus hung out with the weirdest people. Let me tell you about one. Luke chapter 8, verse 1, a bunch of women are following Jesus around. One of them is called Joanna, the wife of Cuza. Now, if you read Josephus, what you learn is Cusa was the manager of Herod's Viagra vineyards. Seriously. Herod was richest man in the world because he grew this Viagra in the ancient world that supposedly worked. They've tested it. It doesn't really work. But Herod was, Herod was growing this stuff. Cusa was managing it for him. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, is following Jesus around. And it says that she was supporting him out of her own pocket. What? Would we take that money here in church, or would that be dirty money? I guess no money's too dirty, right? We just always take it. But think about it. You know, Jesus was an amazing person. He was a safe place for sinners. When people were around Jesus, they felt valued. They felt like they were lifted up. They felt like they could look up, that they weren't identified by their sin. Look what Luke 15 says about Jesus. Keep going, next one. There we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know what our biggest fear is of eating with sinners? We're afraid that we're going to condone their behavior. True? Aren't you afraid if you eat with a sinner, people are going to think that you're condoning what they stand for? And we think it's our job to condemn it instead. What we're supposed to really be about is condemning their terrible behavior. But what if we don't have to condone? We don't have to, have, we don't have to condemn? What if we can just love and welcome people and show them mercy and grace? Now, I've uh, had some interesting experiences over the last few years. Gotten to know a bunch of African refugees. Um, my wife is way better at this than I am, um, And if we think about an African refugee, there's all kinds of stereotypes. We've got them in boxes, don't we, in our heads. These are legal African refugees. But this one young lady that I got to know over the last couple years, her name is Beatrice. When I first met Beatrice, she acted like a 12-year-old. I couldn't figure out how this 25-year-old woman acted like a 12-year-old. And she had five little girls from three different men. She came over to dinner. We sat at the table. We sat and talked. And then out came her story. In the war in the Congo, she was separated from her mother when she was 10, 11 years old. Ended up in a refugee camp by herself. Imagine this at 10, 11 years old. She was raped by a group of men shortly after arriving there. And she had her first two children. It happened more than once. They moved her from that refugee camp to another one so that she could be safer. They locked her in a home there, and more men raped her there. That's when her third kid came along. Then she legally migrated to the United States where she met another African man who was an alcoholic and abused her. She had her other two kids with him. She wanted me to do her wedding to, to him. I said, no, thank you. I don't think it's a good, good marriage. So now Beatrice lives on her own, single mom, Five little girls. Now, if I didn't know her story, I could be judgmental toward her. I could be like, oh, what's with her? What's the deal with that lady? She's got it all messed up. But what would I have done if I was left at 10 years old in some refugee camp and all this stuff happened to me? See, part of being welcoming is being a safe place for people to unpack their stories. Jesus was a safe place. He was the friend of sinners. He was the most holy man to ever live, but his holiness didn't exclude. His holiness included. In fact, while the Pharisees thought touching someone with sin was contaminating you, Jesus thought touching people with sin actually cleansed and healed them. Very different perspective. Would you agree? Urban McManus, the pastor in L.A., California, uh, says this. Go to the next one. When the church is a movement, it becomes a place of refuge for an unbelieving world. The church becomes the place where seekers finally find the God they were searching for. The church becomes the place for the broken and the weary to finally find the healing and the help they cried for. The church becomes the place where the lonely and the outcast are finally embraced and loved in the community of Christ. When the church becomes a movement and not a monastery, she becomes a place of transformation for the very culture from which we run in fear. So is anybody welcome here at Elmer's Church? Anybody that walks through the doors? Are we ready to take them in? To look them in the eyes? And say, we see you as a person made in the image of God. No matter what they've done. No matter what they've been involved in. No matter how they look. Are we ready to welcome them? Now you can practice. You know, there's a thing called muscle memory that you understand is really pretty powerful and, and most of us know it from driver's ed. That's why people drive so poorly because so their muscles are so trained to drive they don't have to pay attention anymore, right? They can just drive the car. <laughs> so you see, I go by people all the time, they're staring at their phones, they're going all over the place because their muscle memory can just drive the car. They've learned how to do it from doing it all these years. Well, we have to get some muscle memory ar- around welcoming. We have to practice, right? We have to practice being a welcoming community where people can come in and feel the grace, the love, feel us looking at them like Jesus would look at them. And the best way to practice is to have someone over for dinner this week. So that's your assignment this week. Who in your neighborhood needs you to have them over for dinner? And just look them in the eye and get to know them. I had a great story this morning from one of our own members here who told me this week we were praying for this and we took this young lady out to, 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 to dinner. They're like, nothing really happened. We didn't lead her to Jesus. I'm like, it's okay. Something happened. Something happened. She feels valued. She feels loved. This is awesome, right? What if we could just value people and love them? I guarantee you we'll become known in the community as the church that values people and loves them, and that's a good way to be known. So this week, can you think of somebody to take out to dinner, someone who doesn't know Jesus? Invite them to your house, have them to dinner, get to know their story, ask them a lot of good questions, listen, and then pray behind their backs, right? And you'll be on the mission of God. Pray behind their backs. They don't need to know you're praying for them. Just pray behind their backs, okay? All right, amen. Let's pray, let's pray. Jesus, we wanna act like you. We wanna be like you. We're supposed to be following you. So Jesus, please um, make us like you. Help us to treat others like you did. Jesus, we pray your Holy Spirit would transform the way we look at people the way we treat them. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.